Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Today on the pod, toxic drug deaths. We look at the alarming rise of overdose deaths among international students. Plus, train to nowhere. Will the Stanley Park train ever operate again? And from Andrew Tate to Jordan Peterson, we look at social media messages bombarding young men. Plus, how special? We look at Chinese-Canadian history through the lens of small-town Asian restaurants in B.C. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's begin the day and discuss uh, international students in Canada. Now, the federal government's uh, attempt to boost the number of incoming international students have um, launched a booming industry and given Canadian employers a steady stream of labour. In fact, over 100,000 students arrive from India to study in Canada every single year. Now, drawn by Canada's reputation and the potential to gain permanent residency, tens of thousands of foreign students enroll every year in Canadian post-secondary schools. What many people don't see, uh, while these students are going to school, universities and public colleges, what they don't see is a life of loneliness, isolation in some cases, long hours of work for many as well. Now, a new report from Press Progress has many international students from the Indian state of Punjab working here in BC are dying at high rates from drug overdose. Joining me now to discuss the issue is reporter Ramnik Johal from Press Progress. Ramnik, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So how prevalent is this issue in regards to international students and drug overdoses? So we're hearing from uh, faith leaders, Gyanin Narendra Singh from Gurdwara Duknavaran in, in Surrey, that they're receiving, they're, they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to return the bodies of students back to India. And he says when this happens, the Gurdwara receives uh, the coroner's reports, and 80% of the reports that they receive uh, say that the cause of death was a drug overdose. And, and to, to drill that down a little bit further, uh, Nir Jawalia of the Guru Nanak Food Bank said that he's hearing it's one to two students a week. And that's in Surrey alone, uh, students from India that are, are dying from drug overdose. Uh, and it's, it's alarming, to, to say the least. So in this case, you were mentioning the Gurdwara there uh, in Surrey. Are, are they the ones that are uh, communicating with the parents back in India? How does how that work? Yes. Yeah, so essentially... Because the students are international students, uh, specifically in this context that we're talking about students from Punjab, often families sell their land back home to send their their children to study in Canada. And uh, money is tight. And often previously students were only able to work 20 hours a week. So if a student uh, dies in Canada, there is no kind of system, there's no insurance to get their bodies sent back. So families are paying out of pocket for both funerals and to get the, the bodies sent back to India. And so the um, the Gurdwara in Surrey uh, said that they kind of got involved because they were getting overwhelmingly contacted by families uh, seeking help and seeking support. Um, and so both the food bank and the Gurdwara said that they are raising funds uh, purely via donations to help these families because they really just don't know where else to turn. Uh, you were mentioning uh, one to two deaths uh, a week uh, from one local organization from the Grunanik uh, Food Bank. Um, are there any 
provincial statistics uh, that focuses on specifically international students or those uh, uh, of Indian heritage or or immigrants that have come to this country, international students specifically. Is there any data that that points to deaths from uh, that part of uh, India here in British Columbia? So, so that's the problem. Right now, there is no standard, provincial standard, to release uh, race-based data or disaggregated data that points to some of these socioeconomic indicators of health in BC. And so what that means is a lot of this information is purely anecdotal. So hearing from community leaders, faith leaders, community-based organizations, funeral homes, uh, that's the only way that you can get this information. And so it's difficult to contextualize the issue if we don't have the numbers. And so it's similar to with the COVID pandemic, you know, there were certain areas, certain communities that were targeted disproportionately, uh, but without this data, it's difficult to determine where these interventions may be needed. And we may be going off of some of these assumptions of what uh, a drug user may look like or be like or where they're from. Mm -hmm. But what this tells us is that, you know, there's various people from various communities that are being impacted and we fully don't know the scope of the issue because the data simply isn't being released by the government. Uh, These students, um, I'm always amazed, you know, uh, sometimes when I leave my office uh, here after our show and I'll walk uh, to my vehicle, it's a couple blocks away and I enjoy the walk in the evening. I remember, uh, I think one day I counted the groups of students I ran into walking back to my vehicle. I think it was seven sets of students, all of of the more South Asian descent. And I think I think back even 20 years, if I was downtown reporting, you wouldn't have seen 27 different groups of South Asian students over a two-block two area. It certainly speaks to the changing face of Canada and all those types of things. But these students, they come here. Uh, you see them in the food courts. You see them uh, in fast food outlets. You see them delivering food downtown. You see them all over at the Lower Mainland. They come, they go to our schools here. They pay top dollar. In many cases, as you said, their families are poor. At the same time, they're working, paying paying their way, number one, and also sending back to, uh, money back to India. It is an incredibly stressful life. It is not something a traditional student probably sees here in Canada, isn't it? I mean, in regards to just being an international student, they, they, they take on a tremendous amount of responsibility. And with it, I would also argue, there's loneliness too, I'm sure, when you're away from your family. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of one of the factors that, that I was speaking to um, Genny Narendra Singh from the Gordora about. He was telling me that, you know, mental health is it's not a conversation specifically in, in the South Asian community. It, it's still It still has some stigma around it for students to be able to admit that they're struggling. But in some cases, they're unable to do so because their families are kind of putting all their eggs in one basket with their children and, and kind of expecting them to send money back home and to try and, you know, settle themselves here so that they can bring their family members over to Canada. And it's really not as straightforward as that when they when they come here. And anecdotally as well, many students have said that there is this real this entire system of, you know, Canada wants international students and that's great, but we need to be able to paint the reality of what life is like here. And oftentimes Students are coming and expecting it to be easy. They're expecting their rent to be cheap. They're expecting to be able to afford to live. And with the cost of living right now, with the cost of international student tuition, which is much higher than domestic student tuition, uh, it just isn't as easy as they're expecting it to be. Um, And so this does lead to isolation. It does lead to uh, in some cases, folks turning to to drugs to cope, and oftentimes, 
and what we heard uh, through a standing committee on health report that was published last fall, uh, some employers and, and fellow co-workers are encouraging uh, their friends or their workers to take illicit substances mm-hmm. to stay awake. So we're hearing people in trades and construction or long haul trucking taking um, substances to, to stay alert in order to finish their shifts because they simply can't afford to, to miss their shifts or to not work. Romnik, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Time to uh, catch up with uh, all the goings on when it comes to the Stanley Park train. Now, many of you know the train was shut down uh, uh, around fall last year due to what the Vancouver Park Board said were mechanical issues affecting the antique engines and passenger cars. That, of course, forced the cancellation of the Stanley Park Ghost Train and its participation, of course, in the annual uh, Stanley Park Bright Nights, resulting in a 50% drop in donations to the firefighters burned fun, a fundraiser. Uh, and we learned earlier this week uh, that an independent engineering firm is scheduled to begin assessing Vancouver's uh, train now, Vancouver, sorry, Vancouver's uh, shuttered Stanley Park train next week. Uh, the, of course, the, there's been lots of reporting on this issue, and man leading this, of course, has been Jordan Armstrong, Global BC's reporter and uh, anchor of the 11 o'clock news uh, as well. He joins us now. Jordan, thank you for speaking to us today. Always good to be with you, Jeff. So walk me through, where are we in regards to this uh, entire conversation? We are a G7 nation, but somehow our <laughs> iconic park, I keep bringing that up, it doesn't just apply to snowstorms, but also apparently the Stanley Park train. Where are we and, and what is uh, going to be happening over the next few months with the Stanley Park train? Oh, man, I ask myself that same question <laughs> hourly. I mean, I took a business trip last week to Vancouver Island to ride a similar miniature train. I mean, it really truly is the silly season, isn't it? But mm-hmm. where are we, Jazz, is we heard last week from the newly elected Park Board Commissioners, the ABC majority on the slate, that they are committed to getting the train back on track as soon as possible, they say. They're not committing to a timeline, whether it be up and running for the popular Easter train or perhaps the summer season, which also brings in a lot of money and visitors. But again, as you mentioned, they now have that engineering firm, which is a requirement from Technical Safety BC. Uh, An engineering firm needs to come in and do a full condition report before the train can be recertified. So that's where we are in terms of looking forward. However, Jazz, Mm -hmm. we still don't have any clarity on how we got to this sorry state in the first place, how this public asset was allowed to get to such a level of decay that it was declared unsafe. And potentially, in a position, now that we're restoring it, potentially it would cost more money to restore it than it would have been to just maintain it all along. The Park Board repeatedly denying interview requests. And when I say the Park Board, I'm talking about the Park Board staff, so GM Donnie Rosa, Mm -hmm. I put in two requests uh, to speak to them this week, including today. Again, I was told Donnie Rosa not available to answer questions on how the park board allowed this asset to decay. Uh, you're uh, reporting from Vancouver Island and, you know, talking to folks in the United States that have expertise in some of these older trains. Give me a sense of what that conversation was like. Yeah, so we went over to Gailey Farms in Saanich last week. They have a train of the same make and model. It's different in that it runs on a 24-inch gauge track. 
Stanley Parks is a 20-inch gauge. So slightly different track size. Mm-hmm. However, same make and model um, for, for most um, you know, reasons, it's the same thing. Uh, Sanich's train is, is a bit newer. It's about 25 years old. The train's in Stanley Park. The engines are from the 60s and the 70s. Um, the folks, though, in Sanich keep that train running with five people. It's a family-run farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do much of the work themselves. They obviously don't have a budget of millions of dollars like the Vancouver Park Board does. Um, you know, and they say it requires constant inspections, but once you know what you're doing, once you have some guys with uh, mechanical aptitude, perhaps ex-railroading experience, which they do, it's pretty routine. If you look after it, in, in, in the farmer's words, um, a maintained train will never die. Uh, as well, I did make some calls uh, this week to the manufacturer, Chance, in Kansas, um, to ask about um, something that the park board seems to be keen to point out, and that is that as I mentioned, their train is of a smaller track gauge. Uh, that particular track gauge hasn't been manufactured since the mid-70s. Um, but again, the, the make and model is still out there and offered by the manufacturer. So I asked the manufacturer in Kansas, do they still support this product? Can they mm-hmm. still uh, provide parts for it? Uh, I was told uh, yesterday by phone, absolutely, most of the parts are the same. And in situations where um, they wouldn't be, they would have to look at uh, an, an you know, things and and doing an order on a case-by-case basis. I also spoke yesterday to an amusement park in New Hampshire, which operates the same gauge as Stanley Parks, a Mm -hmm. 20-inch, with uh, engines that are even older. And uh, the chap there told me that um, they're still running in awesome condition, and their uh, mechanics rebuild them every five years, and they still have a good surplus of parts. So the evidence points to... This can be done if an organization wants it to be done. This keeps coming back to the that this train was just not a priority for the park board jazz. That's you just led me to the next question. I mean, this is all about political desire and a desire to have a train that works. That clearly is very popular among kids and their parents. I know I took my son um, to that train uh, many years ago now when he was younger. It was a wonderful evening. This almost seems like it's a uh, uh, I wouldn't want to argue a political decision. Uh, a cultural decision is there a desire perhaps to do things differently at the park some have even argued that look uh, this is about decolonization that this is uh, that we have to do things differently in that park in, in regards to reconciliation have you heard similar arguments that's a very good question and one we would like to put to park mm-hmm. board general manager donnie rosa if they would make themselves available because as I keep going back to, this is a public asset. This is a public organization. I can't think of any good reason why a decision around a public asset would be made in secret. And at this point, I, I really don't understand their reluctance to answer questions about this. Well, sir, um, certainly with your reporting yeah. uh, from the island and uh, talking to manufacturer and other parks around North America, uh, certainly technically it is possible, which tells you, certainly for me anyway, that, that there is other there are other reasons and they have not certainly talked about it. And I don't know if things will change under this administration. They certainly say they want that train running, and I hope it does. I hope they do get it going, but you're right. There seems to be some sort of institutional hesitancy there, and yeah. uh, hopefully the next few weeks things change. George, Thank you for your time, my friend. I really appreciate it. Good reporting. 
Thanks, Jazz. Always good to chat with you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Canada's new guidelines on alcohol and health have arrived with the following advice. Any reduction in drinking helps. The more you drink, the higher the risks are, and preferably consume no more than two drinks on a given day. Let me repeat that again. Consume no more than two drinks on a given day. Now, the guidelines released today by the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction present uh, present a continuum of health risks associated with different amounts of alcohol, including the risks of several types of cancer, such as breast and colon cancer, heart disease, and stroke. Now, one to two standard drinks a week, uh, each the equivalent of um, a 12-ounce serving of 5% alcohol beer or a 5-ounce glass uh, of 12% wine is considered low risk, and that risk increases with greater amounts of consumption, according to the new document. Do you know what I mean how to talk about uh, Canada's new alcohol guidelines is Dr. Brendan Narung. He's a family physician and a Global News CKNW medical contributor. Dr. Narung, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, Jazz. I wasn't going to bother you, but this came across my <laughs> desk and I said I'm going to give him a call because I know our listeners uh, are going to be uh, t- talking about this issue. Now, the, the, the one to two standard drinks a week. Now, the previous guidelines recommended no more than 10 drinks a week for women and 15 drinks a week for men. That's a huge U-turn. What's causing this in your mind? Well, I think we need to look at that the new, those old guidelines came out in 2011. And so there's been a long time since there's been an update. And um, over the last few years, there's been a lot of more that's understood about the direct impacts from alcohol on our health. And I think, you know, it's not going to surprise anyone to say is like, hey, Drinking too much can lead to um, harm in your body, but now it's drinking even very little amounts by conventional standards can still have significant impact on your health. And so that's what we're looking at. You know, there are physical impacts, there are psychological impacts, and we haven't even talked about um, the fact that up to 20% of the population might be actually having uh, what we call an alcohol use disorder, which means that they have a, um, a relationship with alcohol that they do not have control over. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, under the new guidelines, which was updated by a scientific uh, expert panel, uh, which wanted to reflect sort of the latest research, three to six drinks a week is considered moderate moderate risk for both men and women. Seven or more drinks a week is deemed high risk. Uh, so that's why I guess they recommend not exceeding two drinks on any, any, any yeah. given day. Um, do you think part of this also has to do with the fact that we as a general public, as Canadians, uh, we are reliant on alcohol too often. And, and what I mean by that is, hey, uh, look, we've got uh, some business to talk about. Let's go meet over drinks. We've got, uh, it's Friday, let's go grab some drinks. That We have a tendency, never mind those who abuse alcohol on a regular basis and have challenges with it, is that it's become so normalized that we do generally drink too much, even the ones who feel they don't have a drinking problem or that uh, they don't drink too much. Yeah. Um, yes, and that's one of the, when we look at the indirect consequences of 
um, even the last few years of the restrictions placed by the pandemic and the social isolation. Um, you know, there's evidence from Stats Canada that up to a quarter of people due to stress, boredom, loneliness, this disconnection has actually contributed to an increase in consumption for nearly a quarter of the population. So that's huge as well. And so while there's the social part of it, there's also that social isolation that contributes to it. So what that means is like, what is the role that alcohol um, plays in one's life? I think, you know, for everyone to tell people is like that we, everyone has to uh, live a life of abstinence also isn't um, probably reasonable for most people. I think it's all just understanding what you're doing. It's like every time we go to McDonald's or go somewhere and eat something that's not uh, um, healthy for us, it's, it's a calculated risk. You know that you're not, what you're doing probably isn't healthy for you, but at that point, it's what you've decided to get. And so when we look at like the harms from alcohol, when they say this low, so they say, let's say low is two drinks a week, uh, moderate risk is um, three to six a week, mm -hmm. even with that um, shift is they say in, if you're in a low risk um, level, you're, you might have about a one in, a one in 1000 risk of premature death. If it goes up to that moderate risk, um, then that goes up by 10 times, one in a hundred risk of premature death. Hmm. And that's not a lot more. No, I was, we were talking about this earlier, um, before the show started about, you know, we, it is very common to have a glass of wine with dinner. Uh, I view myself as a social drinker. I, I don't drink at home, rarely if ever drink at home, but I, for social occasions, I will drink. I just got an email uh, from one of our listeners, Jenny, who says, Jazz, what about France and Italy where wine with meals is standard? Do you think they are less healthy? What would you say to someone like Jenny? I, I think that's something that's been debated for a long time. Um, mm. Not debated. It, there's pretty people who live Mediterranean-based diets, mm -hmm. um, and where wine is a staple of that, have um, lived uh, typically healthy lives. Um, but it's it's in the context of everything else we do with it, mm -hmm. and so um, they also have very um, uh, uh, fresh produce and grains. Um, they tend to not eat a lot of red meat, but eat more salmon and fish. They have whole grains, and they live a very active life. Lifestyle, and so um, while they might have that glass of wine that's um, um, with their meals regularly, mm -hmm. um, they it, it's not that they're drinking in excess often um, on a daily basis. And I think what we see here is that there's a lot of um, problematic drinking, especially in, uh, in in kind of our younger populations, where you know telling someone that on a night out that uh, more than two drinks at once is going to be harmful, they're probably just going to laugh at that. And I think that's the part is like the fact that that is so. Uh, foreign to them that that might be harmful is where we as a society really need to look at what our relationships are, what we're doing at home, how we're, um, uh, you know, what kind of uh, behaviors we're modeling for the uh, um, the young that are around us as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a very good point. I mean, uh, you know, to think that those that don't think they have a drinking problem and, and you know, go, let's say, enjoy Christmas holidays or whatever it may be, we've got culturally post Christmas, we've got something now called sober January. I'm not going to drink or I'm not going to drink for the next two mm -hmm. or three months. Um, in regards to some sort of cleanse, I guess, of the body because you perhaps were enjoying yourself with family and friends at Christmas time. I guess that's part of the culture as well that uh, even though we're, we're drinking less apparently because of the numbers, 
uh, it's still an issue where we are, uh, you know, drinking too much when we do drink because we have these cultural events now where, where I've heard people yeah. have already say, I'm not going to drink for January. And I didn't even know sober January was a thing, but apparently well, it is. I, whenever I see things like that, I always think about what are people's motivations behind it. If you're um, taking January off from drinking because you're recognizing that you've drank too much in December or that you might later in the year, um, Sure, that in the short term can help, but it's like a diet. Um, most diets set you up to fail because your your long term behavior change hasn't changed. So your relationship still is like this brief uh, um, break from it, um, while at the time might help you feel better in that time. Um, in the long run, it probably won't make too much of a difference if the other 11 months of the year, you're still um, um, have an at risk relationship with alcohol. Uh, this has been, you know, for the last two decades, 25 years, there's been an ongoing battle with uh, tobacco companies. Uh, you know, many years ago, we decided labeling. We then decided that you can't smoke in public places. In some cases, even in Europe now, they're banning smoking on beaches. Uh, those are the kind of longer term public policies that have been brought in because we know if you use tobacco the way you're supposed to use tobacco, it will cause harm to you. And we'll also cost taxpayers many dollars because we'll have to take care of you through our public health system. Getting to alcohol, do you think it's time we treat alcohol like we've treated smoking over the last 20, 30, 40 years and start labeling bottles uh, with the, uh, the implications of excessive drinking? So the, the report that did come out today does actually recommend um, mandatory labeling for alcoholic beverages with health warnings. I think that um, as a, from a policy point of view, I'm definitely not, uh, I don't have the public policy knowledge on whether it's a good idea or not. I think it makes sense from a... Um, uh, a knowledge translation perspective is just to make sure that whatever the con whatever a consumer is consuming is that they have awareness of what the risks are. But also, um, we should be looking at what are the motivations of why people are maybe have an unhealthy relationship. Is it untreated depression? Is it um, you know other stresses or financial insecurity, security, housing insecurity, or the fact that like alcohol can be relatively cheap compared to other things? So I think we need to look at it at a, a wider lens of not trying to just scare people but also looking at uh, what is more of a um, the root cause of why people have this kind of disordered relationship. Or for people who don't, just that they're aware of what they're doing is risk. And then they can make their own informed decision saying, hey, like, I know that this isn't necessarily the best thing for me. I'll do better next week, but right now I need this right now. And of course, I would say if someone isn't sure how the relationship is, always um, talk with a professional about it, a family doctor, nurse practitioner, um, whoever, or counselor, whoever can support you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Narung, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you've been on the show two days in a row. I promise I'll leave you alone for the rest of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Have a great week. Well, the College of Psychologists of Ontario has ordered uh, Jordan Peterson, who has gained international fame for his best-selling self-help books and lectures, to undergo uh, a media training program, saying some of his tweets may be degrading the profession and even raise questions about his abilities as a psychologist. Now, Peterson, a professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Toronto, has sparked controversy over his views on women, masculinity, and gender identity, and namely refusing to use people's preferred pronouns. Now, the case has also raised broader issues about freedom of expression and whether the college is overstepping its authority by penalizing the controversial psychologist for his opinions. Peterson has a significant following on social media, just like Andrew Tate. Uh, Mr. Tate, a social media sensation for some time, 
time has been banned from YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. The bans were put in place because of a campaign that touted Tate as being damaging to his primarily young male audience. Critics say Tate and other proponents of misogyny are using new technology to amplify their messaging. Take a listen to both men on social media. I'm Topchi. I want to stay here now. That's what makes me such a fantastic individual because I don't have to give up my entire life to be successful in one particular field. Most dudes to look like me have to give up their entire life to look like me. I can do it as a hobby on the side. What the hell are we gonna do without men? You look around the city here, you see all these buildings go up, these men, they're doing impossible things. They're under the streets, working on the sewers, they're up on the power lines, in the storms and the, and the rain. They're keeping this impossible infrastructure functioning. They work themselves to death. And that that's not toxic masculinity, that appalling phrase. If you ever see a man who's talking about food, oh, I had this amazing steak at this one restaurant. This steak is so amazing. He's broke. He's a brokey. Because if the steak was so amazing, he'd eat it every day. And he'd eat it every day to the point where he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. But he doesn't do that because he can't afford it. Joining me now to discuss uh, the rise of both these men and their popularity is Dr. Neil McLaughlin. He's a professor in the Department of Sociology at McMaster University. Dr. McLaughlin, thank you for joining us today. Sure. Happy to be here. Uh, Your thoughts. Why do these men appeal to millions of people? What is the core appeal in your mind? Well, I don't think there is a core appeal. And I like to separate the Tate case, who is someone who's, I think, uh, pretty clearly toxic. Mm -hmm. uh, And this toxic masculinity, I think, really applies to him. But if you take the case of Peterson to explain the vast uh, influence that he has, I would say there's seven different things. There's no core uh, issue. He's a right-wing provocateur. He's an academic expert at University of Toronto. He's a therapist. That's what the college issue is about. He's a father figure for young men. He's a media innovator who's doing new things on, on YouTube and Twitter. He's a spiritual leader. He talks about religion a lot, like obsessed with uh, religion. And he, he's now become a celebrity. <laughs> so he's all those seven things. And it's those seven things together that explain his, uh, his, his enormous fame, I think. Uh, what is it about today's society, here in 2023, that um, makes uh, Mr. Peterson, you've talked about the seven things, but he right. also is fulfilling probably some, for a lot of people who follow him, uh, some core uh, challenges that they're facing, that he fulfills some of those needs. Um, what is it about today's society that makes him so popular? Well, that's why I want to break up, break it up into these seven things, mm-hmm. because people who are conservative and far right wing or center, they, they like him because he's, he's expressing their viewpoints. People who uh, there are people who find some of his academic ideas interesting and useful. That's true. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who, who really like his self-help books, but don't really like the right wing stuff. Uh, there are lots of people who are looking for male role models and father figures. Um, they're, they're, there's, he represents someone who's on Joe Rogan and that kind of new media. Mm-hmm. A lot of people want to talk about, uh, you know, ideas about religion, and it's not happening in the, in, the, in the mainstream culture. A lot of people are very unhappy with universities and how they're uh, not really fulfilling the needs that people have. It's expensive in the U.S. in particular. So I think all these. Uh, so I think it's different people who are uh, appeal, who, who find parts of him appealing. 
Mm-hmm. You, have, you have to look at that as a, as a package. Now, as you say, Mr. Peterson has an academic background. Andrew Tate does not. Right. Uh, uh, in the case of Mr. Tate, what do you think it is? I mean, when, when I, like I'm, I'm a father of a, of a 14-year-old. Yeah. I, yeah. And I'm, all, always, I'm very concerned about kids that age, especially young males, a little older perhaps right. as well, listening right. to this stuff. I mean, yeah. what, 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 what is he fulfilling? Well, he's pretty toxic. That's why I would make the you know make a case of a, a different kind of case there. You know, but but to, to Lincoln Peterson to Tate, I don't think even though there's connections and they become they be, they, they could become part of the same celebrity culture. Peterson's daughter even met with Tate. If you've seen that on on YouTube, so it's, that's kind of like a. A kind of celebrity thing. So I think they're very different. I mean, Peterson, I don't agree with his politics. He's far too conservative, and he's he's giving a, a kind of masculinity version of masculinity that I don't that, that I don't agree with. But he's actually talking to young men who are feeling a lot of pain and and feeling that they're not being listened to and nobody cares about them. He's actually giving a shot at trying to talk to those people. So mm-hmm. I don't think, and the message is not toxic like hates. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's quite different. Uh, how do we reach these men beyond Mr. Peterson reaching them? Uh, you know, some would say, as you say, he has very conservative views. That's fine. Different perspectives in this world. And, and sure. we don't have to agree. Sure. We agree with an individual right. like that. But as broadly as a society, should we be concerned uh, about individuals like this? Or just the case of, look, it's a free society. Let him say what he wishes. There'll be repercussions potentially for him, as we saw you know, on, the, on the professional side. Is there a concern there for parents, for educators? For individuals like this, I mean, I think the idea of trying to stop him. There's attempts to stop him speaking. McMaster, where I teach, mm-hmm. the students stopped him uh, speaking uh, years ago when he on his rise to fame. I think it was a massive mistake. I think that the ideas that Peterson has articulated should be talked about in the universities. That's one of the places where we need to be talking about this. And he's speaking at a hockey arena in Ottawa, and people are trying to stop him from from speaking. I think that's counterproductive. It's going to make him more famous. The whole issue of the college license, that's going to make him more famous. We, we need to be concerned about not silencing Peterson, but actually figuring out ways to talk to young people in different ways, particularly these young men. Mm-hmm. We need to be having dialogues with us. One of the uh, articles I was reading earlier today talked about just what you were mentioning, which is these young men. But especially in the last 30 years or so, it's predominantly, some have argued, white men that are feeling disillusioned, ignored, uh, more so than any other uh, part of society. And let's mm-hmm. just say if that is the case, where do they go in society for enlightenment, for optimism? I know there's a lot of negativity out there, but there should be optimism. Where do they, where, how do we reach them with enlightenment, with optimism? Well, I think we have to go out into the communities and talk to people in our churches and synagogues and mosques. People need to be talking to people, people uh, professors, universities need to restructure the way we think about this and go into the communities and talk to people. There has to be a, a lot less uh, an elitism in the university and, and communities and families need to be able to talk about uh, but some of these issues beyond commentary on these people. I mean, my sense of what I'm hearing from you is, is you know, political correctness. And we've gone the wrong way when it comes to our universities. 
Uh, and even mainstream media, we've gotten too cautious. We've not been as open, potentially, to some right. of these ideas. And the uh, Jordan Peterson's ex- uh, specifically, and, and Andrew Tate, as you say, mm-hmm. is completely different. It's misogynistic. But yeah. in many yeah. ways, they're pushing back to that ver- those very sort of uh, institutions and establishment that has been more, some would say, narrow-minded than they should be. They should be open to some of this stuff. Absolutely. Not in the form that some of the things that... Uh, the way that Peterson talks sometimes. And mm-hmm. the more he gets attacked, the more kind of uh, irrationally gets him sometimes. But he's not wrong about everything, and some of the things he says are, are, are useful and we should dialogue. So I think that's the, the question that we need to get on. What are the issues, these seven roles, are these different, there's different groups. What are the issues? What, how are our mainstream institutions not addressing them and how, we can, how can we open up some dialogue about some of these issues? And, and these, these, these young men deserve attention, they deserve uh, to be thought about, they deserve care, uh, and uh, he's trying to do that. Not in the way that, uh, that I would want it to be done, but we've got to step up to the plate and do a better job, yeah. and that's how I see it. Dr. McLaughlin, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. Well, yesterday, Premier David Eby joined us on this program as he announced that the BC government uh, is making it easier for developers and home builders to get approvals to build more homes in the province. Uh, Now, rather than requiring multiple provincial permit applications from different ministries and looking for different approvals and construction to build more homes, the province is creating a one-stop shop approach to permitting. The permitting strategy will create 42 new full-time positions. Once those positions are filled, the team, uh, the, the, the permitting strategy team will be increased to 203 positions. Um, Now, this is the latest housing announcement uh, uh, coming after last week's announcement where the government said it would introduce a new $500 million affordable rental protection fund. That money is earmarked to allow uh, non-profit housing organizations to to buy older rental buildings by providing them with one-time capital grants. Our next guest remains skeptical whether any of these announcements uh, will fundamentally make housing affordable in British Columbia. Joining us now is BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Jeff. Well, let's touch uh, on a couple of announcements. Uh, the other day, uh, Premier Eby and the Housing Minister announced a permitting strategy for housing. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, on sort of a one-stop shop uh, for moving uh, these permits through rather than various ministries that once had, would look at various files and not be talking to each other, according to the Premier. Your thoughts on this new permitting strategy? Well, in theory, a good idea. Uh, in practice, the way they're going about it, I think a terrible idea. Uh, now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that the backlog of permits that have accumulated, accumulated while David Eby was the minister responsible for housing for several years. And so his solution is, let's streamline government by adding up to 200 new bureaucrats to uh, help streamline a very inefficient government approval system. Now, I can tell you as a former minister that was responsible for reducing red tape across government by over one-third in my first three years, that this is not an encouraging approach. Um, When you've got an inefficient approval and permitting system in the provincial government across multiple ministries, uh, the solution isn't to go out and hire 200 more bureaucrats to then try and, you know, accelerate an already convoluted uh, approval system. It's simply not going to work, I can tell you based on my experience. Um, and, and look, I think at the end of the day, we do have to hold David E. B. accountable as the housing minister. He was responsible for housing. This is a government that promised, as you know, within 10 years 
that they were going to build 114,000 affordable homes. And we're over halfway through that 10-year mandate. They've built 10% of the promised 114,000 homes. But frankly, even that number is inflated because half of those are hotels and motels that they purchase where they're warehousing uh, the homeless and the mentally ill. So I, I just think that at the end of the day, as I always say when it comes to this government, focus less on the announcements. They love making announcements. Focus on the results. And the results we're getting are not good. What would you differently then? I mean, the idea of reducing um, permitting time is the right thing, one would agree, one would say, number one. Number two, uh, ministries don't always talk to each other. Um, and I think developers would tell you that. What would you do differently in regards to this specific issue about permitting with the provincial government? Well, it's an example. I would go back to what we were doing, which is we had, for example, for environmental approvals, there are environmental professionals out there, similar to when you hire an engineer to, you know, sign off on your building design or what have you. There are environmental professionals that can also sign off on the environmental work that's being done there. It doesn't have to all be done in government, but the NDP government made the decision that they wanted to bypass that approach that was working very, very well and and hire a bunch of people into the province, the provincial government, and uh, do it that way. So we've got a situation now where the uh, provincial bureaucracy has grown by 30% in five years, uh, over 120,000 new full-time employees. And I just simply ask this question of the public everywhere I go. Has anyone seen a 30% improvement in services anywhere? Not just in housing, but in healthcare or in crime or anywhere. And not yet have I come across anybody that has. So I think the problem is, that this is a, a government, and David Eby is certainly a premier that believes that the solution to every problem is government. And I would point out, as the C.D. Howe Institute did, that if you look at uh, the cost of housing today, taxes and red tape add up to about $644,000 for every average house uh, that's built, every new home that's built. And therein lies the problem. A lot of the problem is actually government, and his solution is more government. It's not going to work. Now, let's talk a little bit about the NDP's announcement from last week, which was the $500 million Affordable Rental Protection Fund, where nonprofits uh, will be given money to purchase older buildings. Now, Mr. Eby has said that uh, real estate investment vehicles and hedge funds have purchased these rental properties across the country, which is leading to people being booted out or um, seeing a significant increase in rent. So, hence, they have brought in this $500 million affordable renter protection fund. Uh, Mr. Eby says he wants to do what he can to slow down. Uh, the purchasing of some of these older buildings, or at least try to stop it, of course. And then setting up this rental fund will hopefully be the start towards doing that because he doesn't believe uh, these real estate investment vehicles, hedge funds should be in this business. Uh, Mr. Falcon, do you think that's the right way to go in regards to helping those uh, in the rental market? Well, look, here's the, the, the this encapsulates I think a lot of the problem with this government, uh, David Eby and virtually every person as part of his government, almost none of them have any private sector background experience. And so they end up uh, looking for David Eby in particular, looking for, um, uh, you know, the bogeyman that they can blame all the problems on. They started with Chinese foreign buyers, David Eby, with that phony study that he had in 2015, where he tried to say based on 125 homes on the West side that had non-anglicized names, that uh, ergo it must be and Chinese foreign buyers that are driving up prices. That turned out not to be true. Then he said it was uh, it was all because of um, you know uh, 
money laundering that was driving up prices. Judge Colvin looked at that and said, uh, that's not true at all. Uh, then he said it was just evil developers. Now apparently it's REITs. Well, look, REITs are an investment vehicle that manage and purchase uh, rental properties. Uh, most of their money comes from pension funds, and I would argue a lot of the uh, working men and women in this province uh, are invested in REITs. And what they do is they buy large properties and they use their scale to help manage and, and keep costs down because they can buy things in bulk uh, that are necessary when you're running a lot of uh, buildings. Um, he's trying to turn them into the, the latest uh, you know, uh, blame game uh, for the lack of affordable rental housing. Rental, uh, average rents have gone up under the NDP government to the highest level in Canada. Just understand that. This, again, comes back to results. They're getting terrible results. The answer is we need far more new supply of housing, and the only people that will be able to deliver that is the market. Now, this $500 million, what concerns me about that is the last time that David Eby and the NDP handed over hundreds of millions of dollars to build housing, it was to BC Housing. And David Eby was responsible for that. And how did that end up? Well, an audit came back from uh, uh, one of the big uh, accounting firms that said things are completely out of control. There's financial chaos. There's contracts being let without proper paperwork. Uh, Effectively, they don't know what they're doing. It was so bad that David Eby fired the entire board on a Friday night, a board, by the way, which the NDP had appointed. Um, And, you know, it's been total chaos. There's now a forensic audit underway Uh, over at that Crown Corporation. So now you ask me, how do I feel about him taking another $500 million and asking a group of nonprofits to go and buy a bunch of buildings when they honestly, they're not set up for that. They haven't got the right skill sets to be able to be out, uh, you know, competing uh, in the private sector to buy up these places. I want to jump in there just just for a second. Sorry, Kevin, I just want to jump in there for a second. You've worked with the development industry. I think it was Anthem Properties. these folks uh, uh, have the expertise, they've got the talent. Can these nonprofits, whatever whatever way they're set up in regards to this rental fund, and there's been talk now that they may even get first dibs. Now, that's not the legislation, but it's one the government's looking at. They would get the first dibs to some of these properties being offered on the market, potentially. The government is looking at that. It it is something that does occur in Quebec. Uh, What are your thoughts on just the fact that the government would bring in legislation where there would be that much involvement of government in the market. Is, is this, should this be a cause for concern in regards to nonprofits getting first dibs to these properties? Well, look, I don't have any problem with government coming in with smart policies or regulatory policies that are going to help make it better to actually create affordable housing for people that will actually be affordable. But it has to start with a fundamental, mis- uh, a, a fundamental understanding, and that is that show me where, anywhere, where government has been successful in delivering and owning a lot of housing. In most places, they're called slums. They don't work out well. You look at the SROs right now that are being operated and owned by the provincial government. Um, and, you know, Global TV has ran some stories about the horror show that these places have become. Um, the fact of the matter is, the greatest expansion of rental housing that we ever saw in the history of this province, and one of the reasons why when you drive around you notice that a lot of the older rental buildings all come from a certain vintage, sort of the mid-70s to the early 80s, was because they had a program back then, the federal government, called the MERB program, Multi-Unit Residential Building Program. And it incentivized the private sector to go and build rental housing. And they built a ton of it. In fact, that's still where most of it came from. And the problem is that since that program was shelved in the early 80s, there's been very little 
uh, rental housing being built up until recently where developers started trying to get back into rental housing. But again, NDP policies have made that more difficult because what they've done is they've said, well, that's fine, but you can only you cannot increase rents more than 2%, even though inflation is running at 6 or 7%, sometimes higher depending on the, the service you're looking for. And it makes it very, very difficult for a lot of these um, landlords to, to make ends meet. So you have to have policies that are going to encourage new supply. Uh, you need thousands of new units, not just, you know, uh, little bits. And, 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 and to believe that handing $500 million to a group of nonprofits with good intentions, but folks that don't, unlike the private sector that get up every day and all they think about live, breathe is uh, buying and selling real estate. That's what they do. That's their business. And so we just have to be thoughtful about how this is done to make sure we get the results that we need. And the thing I just want to emphasize is that after two terms of NDP government, we've ended up with the highest housing prices in North America and the highest average rents in Canada. That's not a good result. We need a different approach. Kevin, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Jazz. Well, let's talk food. Food connects people. Food is often used as a means of retaining one's cultural identity as well. Recently, TELUS On Demand featured a docuseries called House Special. Host uh, Jackie Kyalis visits five communities in BC and Alberta on a culinary quest to uncover the dishes at the centre of the Chinese-Canadian story. She meets uh, local historians and restaurant owners sampling staple dishes and cooking recipes. Uh, Miss Kyalis also explores the story of her own Chinese-Canadian heritage. This past weekend, I was uh, just uh, perusing through the uh, South China Morning Post and I saw a feature on um, the program itself and on Jackie Kyalis and it was just a fabulous read and I did want to speak to her this week because I you know I grew up in the interior and uh, whenever you travel to small communities there's always one uh, Asian uh, restaurant and I've always wondered what wh- where do those people come from uh, in regards to their personal story uh, and their story not only as small business owners is the story of British Columbia as well so I really wanted to speak to uh, Jackie Kyles, who is an author, she's a pastry chef, and she's the host of House Special. Jackie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, tell me, what was it like meeting uh, these owners and these workers at these restaurants in the interior? I would say that the word would be humbling, you know, to see how hard and how many hours are put into their work. They wake up, they're the earliest people open and the latest people closed. And just to see how much passion they have for their communities as well was really humbling. Mm-hmm. So it was, yeah, genuinely very eye-opening and um, struck me in the heart. Uh, how would you describe, I mean, they're hardworking immigrants. How would you describe their relationship with Chinese cuisine and Chinese food? Well, I mean, this is the long, long debate. Is Chinese Canadian food authentic Chinese food? And I would say, you know, it doesn't bear much of a resemblance sometimes to the food that you might find in you know greater china Mm -hmm. Um, but it is authentic because it is the food of people that have uh, brought flavors with them without the necessary ingredients that they would have in their hometowns where they come from but they find the ingredients here in canada and they make the food that people here the locals would eat and so it's this amalgamation of whatever you find locally for local palates, but with a Chinese sensibility. And so for them, they do have dreams and memories of food from home. And we in Vancouver are so lucky we can find that here. 
Um, but sometimes in small towns, you know, they just crave a really simple steamed fish and they cook that for themselves and it's not sweet and sour pork that they're craving. So there is a difference, but I wouldn't say that Chinese Canadian food is any less authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, your personal story uh, and what it was like for you on a personal uh, level, traveling to these places, meeting these people, uh, hearing their stories and telling their story. Well, I think for me, you know, I was pregnant at the time and a lot of my family history and and just my roots were really coming up in my own life. And I wanted to reexamine those. And so it was the perfect timing to be able to shoot this show and to be able to go into these small communities, meet people I'd never met before, but with the same heritage as me and realize that there are so many similarities between our cultures, such as we love each other with food, first and foremost. Or I'd go into restaurants and, you know, the female restaurant owner would have heard that I was pregnant and they would cook me soup. And that's something that my mom would do for me. And it's a sign of love. And so it really touched me and it helped me to actually understand the love of my own mother Hmm. in this context. And it also connected me back to what kind of mother do I want to be? And how do I want to connect my Chinese heritage to this child that's being born in the next generation who's one step further away from maybe the immigration story? So it was it was really a profound personal experience as well as, yeah, learning one. I mean, you, you here you're doing a television production, telling a story. But, I, you know, when I, when I hear you here, it's got to be an emotional experience as well because you have people who are connected to you by heritage, uh, by food itself. Uh, and yet they're also, through this very food, telling their own immigrant story as well and, 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 and the story of British Columbia, which isn't told as much as perhaps we should be telling uh, this particular story. Was there a particular moment that was uh, that the sort of reflected the broader piece to you or on camera or off camera that uh, is sort of seared in your mind? Absolutely. There was one moment where we were at the Kelowna um, uh, Heritage Museum and there was a section where you could read uh, some of the letters that were sent from China to um, men that were here just working restaurants or the railroad or whatever it was. And I read some of these letters and I... I mean, we we all know the story that Chinese immigrants, you know, helped build the railroad Mm -hmm. and what kind of conditions they were working in and the racism that they suffered. And I didn't actually know to what degree, because growing up, you know, I'm 43 now. So growing up, I didn't learn a lot of this, maybe 15 minutes in social studies class. Mm -hmm. So it was eye opening to me, you know, the um, Asian Exclusion Act, all of those all of those things, just pieces of history. But to bring it all home, I read one letter and the letter said, thank you so much for sending money. And just to put this in context, it was a guy who'd come, probably come here, left his family, left his wife, his children, his everything that he'd known and probably knew he would never go home again. And his wife says, thanks for sending money. Please send more money because your father has passed away and we want to give him an honorable burial please send some money for the children's education. Hopefully one day your grandchildren will prosper. So he was not working so hard to sacrifice for himself, Mm -hmm. not even for people he knew, but it was for a generation that he would never meet. And that really struck me 
just the element of sacrifice. And so I understood why sacrifice is such a language of love in Asian cultures. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think there are more stories to tell? I mean, in this case, you've done uh, five parts for this docu-series. I think of every small town in BC, uh, in so many ways, has always had an Asian-themed restaurant uh, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s in the interior, and always amazed at uh, at. The, the, how hardworking those those people were. Um, I mean, you could probably do many more of these uh, stories around British Columbia. Is there any talk of doing more? I mean, I would love to. I would drop everything in a second to be able <laughs> to tell more of these stories. It was so fun to do. And um, Black Rhino Creative, who, who were the directors, producers of the show, they were amazing to work with. So we all really believe that there are more stories to tell, but... You know, that's that's really uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But really, it's kind of a prompt to ask the local Chinese restaurant owner what their story is, I think. Yeah, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed um, the story. Uh, The special is called House Special, and uh, you can watch it on Telus On Demand. Highly recommended. It is not just a story of immigrants. It's not just a story of food, but it's also a story of British Columbia uh, and Canada as well. Jackie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.